question of the person of Jesus. It's a big subject, and uh, I've been suggesting an approach to it that we begin at the beginning and follow it along the way in which the disciples learned about Jesus. And before they they got to the glories of Jesus' deity and his atonement on the cross and his, his being our high priest and his ruling over all things. He must reign until he puts all enemies beneath his feet. Before the disciples got to that, they just began seeing that he was a man and his ordinary earthly life. And then they saw more and more and more as time went on. And I'm suggesting that we follow the same route. And so we're looking at quite ordinary things, in some ways ordinary things about Jesus, the man, although there are extraordinary things there as well. And uh, so I was suggesting that we get hold of the fact that Jesus is a historical figure. He's the central figure of the entire universe. He's the center of history. He's the center of salvation. He's the source of living the Christian life. We live in him. We are strong in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final judge. He'll go on ruling and reigning till he puts all enemies beneath his feet and then he'll hand the kingdom over to the Father, having perfectly done everything that the Father has asked him to do. And so we are thinking of a centrality. I was arguing a little bit, I was sort of hinting a bit that... uh, it's possible to tell the story of Jesus. Not many people do that. Even Bible-believing Christians tend nowadays not to really see the story of Jesus. That's uh, the reasons for that. It's partly a, a question of what's fashionable in the universities. Universities have fashions, you know, and uh, even theological faculties have fashions. And it's out of fashion at the moment to uh, tell the story of Jesus. You can read... Uh, strong evangelical Bible-believing commentators who will say things like this. They will say, Mark has put his story together in a way that leads to a climax. They won't say things happened in a way that leads to a climax. They will say, Mark put his story together. As though what we're reading in the Gospels is simply a matter of literary arrangements. Uh, the reason for that has got to do with the history of New Testament studies and the kind of pressures that are on on um, biblical scholars. One reason why I like doing any kind of study I like doing outside the universities is when you're doing these things with churches, you're free. You're not under any kind of pressure. When you're doing academic work in a university, it's amazing what pressure you come under and how people are demanding that you say certain things or or that you don't say certain things. And so it's very unfashionable at the moment to um, tell the story of Jesus. And those who do tell the story are normally not academics, they're, they're just uh, pastors putting the story together in chronological order. And often they do better than the academics. The academics are under, under pressure not to do that. Um, but I have been arguing that there is such a thing as the story of Jesus. I've written a book about it, I've not mentioned it, but uh, there is a book in print, it's uh, published by New Wine, called Jesus in the Gospels. And I argue it all out in great detail. You can uh, look at that sometime, maybe. But... Um, there is such a thing as the story of Jesus. And then I'm interested in things like the character of Jesus, what he was like as a person, and how he spent his time. How do you think Jesus spent his time? What, what was his daily routine like? What did he do? What, what, was his, uh, what were his activities? What was his daily life like? Well, I'm interested in that. And tonight I want to speak especially on his miracles. Jesus spent a lot of time 
working miracles. His, his activities had two big things in it, the two main things that the New Testament stresses, the Gospels emphasize. He spent his time preaching, and he spent his time in miracles, and often in working miracles. And often when the New Testament is summarizing the work of Jesus, often it'll do it under those two headings. Remember, maybe... Matthew chapter 4, where it's summarizing what Jesus did. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease. It, it summarizes it under two points teaching, preaching, healing. There's always two points there. It wasn't the only thing he did, he did other things as well. He was a, a man of prayer. You often find Jesus uh, praying. He would often withdraw. When you, when you read the word withdraw in the Gospels. It always means withdraw to pray. He just withdrew. Got up early in the morning, went into a desert place. They're all looking for him. And they search for him and they find him. He's got up early in the morning, gone to a desert place and there he prayed. Mark chapter 1 verse 35. He was a man of prayer and so on. So what are the activities of Jesus? Before we think about healing, what were the activities of Jesus? Um... Let me, let's think about that. But I want, you to, I want to read the passage as well. Let's, let's begin by reading Mark chapter 8. And I want to begin to read at Mark eight fourteen. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They've just uh, been one side of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus has just fed 4,000 people and they're crossing back over the lake again. But uh, they've forgotten bread. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with only five loaves, but they're a little bit worried when he got one. Um, they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And the seven loaves of bread for the 4,000. How many baskets full of pieces, broken pieces, did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, he led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, well, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. As I say, I'm interested in the activities of Jesus, one of which were these miracles. How did Jesus spend his time? I think one ought to divide that question up into three. Uh, how, what did Jesus not do? When you read your Bible, it's often worth noticing not only what is there, but what's not there. A lot of things that we do that in no ways have any kind of equivalent in the Bible. 
and um, that ought to make us ask questions. If you find yourself doing something in Christian work and there's not the slightest shadow of a hint of anything like that in the New Testament, well then you, you ought to be asking a few questions. Why are you doing something that nobody in the New Testament ever does, nor anything like it? That, that ought to make you uh, ask a few questions. What did Jesus not do? Is a good question worth pursuing. And then what major things did he do by way of big decisions? What was he, what was he deciding to do? What, what big things did he do in his life? And uh, thirdly, what were his regular activities? Things that he did frequently and they were the consistent pattern of his life. What did he not do? Well, he never started a political party. You'd expect in, in a country with a colonial movement around and slavery and all sorts of and poverty and crowds of needy people and Samaritans fighting Jews and Gentiles, conflicts of all sorts, you'd, you'd expect Jesus to get a bit involved and start some sort of campaign to abolish slavery or get rid of the Romans or start some sort of kind of political program to improve the life in Israel. You'd almost expect him to do it. But he never did. He never did the slightest thing in terms of political action. I'm not saying that Jesus' teaching did not have political implications. I think, he, I think they did. But he never took any kind of political action, did he? He never started any political program or any political endeavor of that, of that kind. He had a great sympathy for the poor. There's some uh, political implications there. I'm sure about that. But uh, even then, he didn't uh, turn it into any kind of political nitty-gritty, apart from uh, preaching to them. So he never started a political program. He never started any kind of educational programs. He never started a theological college for his disciples. He never got involved in the details of social welfare. He never got involved in any kind of nitty-gritty of practically helping the poor to raise themselves economically. He preached to the poor a lot, but uh, he never got involved in social, the nitty-gritty of social welfare, did, did he? He never got in, involved in what what in, in the Anglican prayer book is, uh, are called occasional services. He, he never took a funeral. Well, he did raise the dead a few times. <laughs> Make a funeral unnecessary. He did interrupt one when the widow of Nain was going by. He never took a wedding service, although he did attend one, but he never took a wedding service or anything like that. He never baptized anybody, although there's plenty of baptisms, but he gave it to his disciples. He never did it. He never baptized anybody. He never got involved in, in what the Church of England calls occasional service, services, these weddings and funerals and baptisms, these kind of occasional things. He never did anything like that, did he? He never got involved in anything which you could call entertainment. He never had a, a musical evening for young people or anything which, which really is more entertainment than, uh, than directly spiritual. We, we often do that in churches, but uh, Jesus never did anything like that, did he? Well, you can pursue those questions, and, um, uh, and we could ask, what are the implications of that? If Jesus never got involved in political programs, or social welfare, or entertainment, or educational institutions, or the kind of religious activities that many churches get involved in, if Jesus never ever did any of those things, what are the implications of them? Does, does it mean that we could never do that? Or are we... Uh, not, not allowed ever to have, a, say, a young people's uh, musical evening? Are we never allowed to have a, a, wedding, a Christian wedding? I think the implication is, is that it tells you what is directly the immediate work of the Christian church. The direct and immediate work of the Christian church is this proclaiming of the gospel 
That, that's its immediate thing. Many things that are good and right and we could do, political things, educational things, Christian schools, nice evenings for young people, many of those things are okay, but surely they're not the direct work of the church, and especially they shouldn't be the work of pastors. These things, you, you may say, should Christians be in politics? Should the church be in politics? Well, I think you should divide that into two questions. Should the ch- number one, should the church be in politics? Number two, should Christians be in politics? And they're not the same question, are they? You see, a Christian, an individual Christian, could be maybe a, a political candidate or get involved in the nitty-gritty of political life. That's not quite the same as a church supporting the local politician or the, or, or the, the preacher preaching who to vote on a Sunday morning. There's a difference between Christians being, let's say, in politics or education or whatever, and the church being in, in such things. I would argue that... Um, when you look at the, the ministry of Jesus, and it, we, we are an extension of the ministry of Jesus. What he does, he puts it put in our hands. He's gone to heaven and left it with us now. So the direct work of the church, I didn't say the direct work of Christians, I said the direct work of the church as the church is, is limited. And uh, that's surely the implication of these, these omissions in the life of Jesus. It doesn't mean that, they, that no one could ever do any of these things, but it means that's not the work of the, of the church. Jesus, I don't suppose Jesus would mind if somebody else to take a wedding. He went to a wedding. He didn't mind somebody else doing it, but he didn't do it. He, he's not objecting to baptism, but he himself never baptizes anybody. Uh, there are certain things which are the priorities, and uh, we should learn from the life of Jesus. Of course, the great uh, example here, of course, is what happened in the Church of Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 6. Remember, there was a kind of social problem in the Church of Jerusalem in that they were helping each other and uh, helping the widows because they were going through an economic crisis in Jerusalem. And uh, there were many people there. There were locals who spoke Aramaic. There were visitors from upcountry that spoke spoke Greek. And there was a bit of a difference between the Greek-speaking and the Aramaic-speaking widows. And one began to be favoured more than the other. And so they bring the, the problem to the apostles. And you remember what the apostles said? It's a very, very interesting answer, and we ought to learn from it. They bring this thing to the apostles, and the apostles answer in this way, Acts chapter 6. They say, all right, we, we better do something about this. So they said, well, well then, brothers and sisters, you, you pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, now, do you follow that? You go and do this. You go and find the people. We're not even going to look for them. You go and find them. And you bring them to us, and we will appoint them. We'll take responsibility to get it done, but we're not going to be the ones who do it. We will appoint them. Mind you, we will go on in praying and preaching. Now, that's it perfectly. The apostles will not get involved in something which is not their direct work, although they will see that somebody else who's not, who are not in particular ministry, they are deacons, not, past, not, not pastors or elders, they will see that the work gets done, but they themselves will not get into it. That surely is the principle. It's the same principle as, what Jesus, as to what Jesus does do and what he does not do. Our main work is to... Um, Pray and preach. In that order, we, prayer comes first, it's before preaching. And uh, very, very many things come out of that, but um, we don't get involved as church. I'm not talking about what individual Christians might do. We do not get involved as church in things like politics, nor even education. Supposing you have a Christian school, which many churches do, especially in Africa, and every church in, in Africa has a, almost invariably has a Christian school. Um, 
And when we were in Lusaka, we had a Christian school there, and in Nairobi Baptist Church we did, and in Crisco Fellowship where I am, we have a Christian school. There are many churches, especially in Africa, have Christian schools. But um, it's very important how you do it. And I've, I've seen different things in different places. In some churches where the church starts a Christian school, and so the pastor and the elders, they're sort of looking after a school as, as well as uh, having a church. The building's empty Monday to Friday, so they may as well use it. And uh, people will come in and bringing their children to school. Maybe they'll come to church. It's a kind of evangelistic uh, endeavor as well. So they have a Christian school. But what so often happens is the elders and the, and the pastor, it's as if we're looking after a Christian school, though they are capable, they're totally incapable of doing it. I mean, how many elders are educationalists? How many elders know anything about running schools? And... Um, they often make a bad job of it, and elders' meetings are taken up with school, with school policies, and some, some parent gets upset about something, it has to come up to the eldership. It, it really becomes a bit of a mess. No, if you have a Christian school, the right way to do it is to, to, to appoint some Christian and let him or her use the building, and you say, this is your job. You do it. You, you run your Christian school. Don't bring this to the elders. It's your job. And we will, we will give this to you. We will let you use our building upon an annual basis. You'll come back every year. If you damage your reputation, we won't, we won't let you continue. But, uh, but you, you run this, and the school is done entirely by someone entirely separate from the eldership. And, and there are educationalists in charge of it, and the building's being used, and Christians are using it, but it's not a church school, in the sense that the pastors and elders are, are running it. Well, think about that. I've, I've been in both experiences. In Nairobi Baptist Church, the, the church did run a church school. I inherited a situation where the church was running a church school. Man, it, it brought us problems. <laughs> in those of us who are here in Lusaka Baptist Church, some of you are here tonight, You'll remember that we, we let Jane Wood hire the, uh, have the use of the building. She ran it. She was no elder. She, was, she had no, no connection whatsoever with the leadership of the church directly. She ran that, that school in the Sarko Baptist Church. It was a good school. My children went there. It was a good school. We did well. It, never, it had nothing to do with the life of the church, although it, it was a good testimony for the church. We separated education and church, and that surely is what you ought to do. It's what we try to do in, in um, Nairobi at the moment as well. So these, learn some lessons by these things that Jesus kept out of. doesn't mean that everybody should keep out of them, but it means it's not the work of pastors or of Jesus himself or of the church as the church. Individual Christians may be, but not the church as the church. And then we can think of, secondly, under this heading, of the, the big decisions Jesus made. And we could look at each one of these. I haven't time to do it just yet. But uh, it was a massive decision he made when he decided to join the ministry of John the Baptist. And I was saying something about that earlier. He, got, he went to John and asked to be baptized. That too was one of his major decisions. He decided to begin his ministry by about six weeks out in the wilderness of praying and fasting and seeking God. He twice cleansed the temple, walked into the temple at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end of his three-year ministry and uh, drove out the businessmen from the temple, just using it as a kind of marketplace and said, this is a house of prayer, Uh, you're turning it into a den of thieves. He twice did that. And we could look at each of those uh, events and see what Jesus was doing, although we won't do that tonight. And then there are his regular activities. How did Jesus spend his time? Well, he spent his time preaching, and we could divide that up, because I think there are lots of different types of preaching in the ministry of Jesus. 
I would like to know the answer to the question, did Jesus ever prepare a sermon? Did Jesus ever sit in his study with his Bible open, making notes for what he would preach on Sunday morning? I'm sort of doubtful about that. Um, Is there any sort of indication that Jesus ever prepared a message? I think maybe there is a tiny bit. I would say the Sermon on the Mount has sort of marks that it was well prepared. At least Jesus knew exactly what he was going to say. He said it in an orderly manner, moving from point to point to point. There's all the kind of appearance of a prepared sermon. So he either prepared that sermon or he carried things very tidily in his head as he was preaching, one way or the other. But uh, there's not much sort of reference to Jesus preparing any kind of sermon, is there? And when that verse that we read just now says, we will give ourselves to to the praying and the ministry of the word, I think many people take that to mean we we really need sort of time to study. And we sit in our study and we we pray in our study and and we give time to the word in our study. That is not what it means. When Acts chapter 6 says we give ourselves to prayer and the word, it doesn't mean prepare and preparing to preach. It means to praying and preaching, not preparing. We're actually doing it, doing the actual preaching of the word. We're going to give ourselves a lot of time to be doing it all day and every day. It's not talking about preparing anything. It's talking about just doing the work of sharing the word of God in Acts chapter 6. But I think there's plenty of indication that Jesus normally preached without any preparation whatsoever. A man would be you would be talking to people and there would be a man in the congregation who would shout out, bid, bid my brother, divide my inheritance. Remember that story in Luke chapter 11, is it? And uh, what would you do if you're preaching on a Sunday morning? And as you're preaching, some guy says, you know, you, I think you're a good guy, you could help me a bit. Can, can you help me uh, sort out a family problem? What, what would you do if somebody said that on a Sunday morning? I think you'd say... Deacons, just, just get rid of that guy. Just, just escort him out somewhere. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus just turned on him and said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He immediately took up what that man said spontaneously with no preparation. He did not know that man was going to say that. He immediately takes it up and the parable of the rich fool comes in at that point. Well, there was a man who was building, saying, I'm going to build barns and bigger barns. And God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Jesus said that in answer to that man's interruption. And uh, when revival comes, we, we are not experiencing revival in Britain just yet, but I can tell you, when revival comes, your sermons are interrupted all the time. Happened upon the day of Pentecost, did it not? They were in the day of Pentecost and suddenly they, they start crying out, interrupting, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're interrupting the sermon. Uh, when revival comes, people are always interrupting sermons. People break down, they start weeping, anything can happen. And and, under the power and the authority of Jesus praying, all all the time people were asking questions, should we pay taxes to Caesar, should we do this, should we do that? They're interrupting him, calling out, and every every time he just responds immediately to what's going on. He's not sitting in his study preparing nice, neat little addresses. He is uh, in the spirit and... uh, He's preaching, ready for anything to happen. And then think of the controversies of Jesus. Jesus never avoided controversy. No matter what question they threw at him, he always answered them. Shall we pay taxes to Caesar? They're not sincere in that. They're not trying to find out the principles of godly living. They're just trying to get him into trouble. If he says yes, he's in trouble with the Romans. If he says no, he's in trouble with, with... if he says no, he's in trouble with the Romans. If he says yes, he's in trouble with the Pharisees who, who don't want to be supporting a pagan regime. No matter what answer he, he gives, he's in trouble. 
It's not a sincere question. They're just wanting to get him into trouble. Every time people throw some question like that at Jesus, he's always, I was going to say he was always brilliant, but that's maybe not the right word. He always has heavenly wisdom. He was given what to say from God. And he says, you have a coin in your pocket. Yeah, show me. Oh, it's got Caesar's head. He, he immediately proves how hypocritical they are. That they, they're, not, they're not just uh, trying to find the right way through life. They've got Caesar's money in their pocket. They're using Caesar's system already. He immediately shows how hypocritical they are. They're not sincere about the question at all. They've got Caesar's money in their pocket. And then he does something which is amazing, most amazing thing, one of the most amazing things he ever did. He separates Caesar's realm and God's realm. Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. He separates the two realms, church and state, if, if you like. That's one of the most uh, amazing things Jesus ever said. Every time they throw some questions at him uh, in the resurrection, what's, what's the greatest law? Should we do this? Should we do that? These questions they keep on throwing at Jesus every time they try to get him into trouble. He, he never rejects the question. He always takes it and answers it. And he says, oh, by the way, I've got a question for you. What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? They ask him questions about abstruse bits of theology and the law and things will get him into trouble. He asks them a question about himself. Who do you think I am? And uh, whose son is the coming Messiah? David calls him Lord. He's the son of David who... What do you think of the person of the coming Messiah? They ask him questions to get him into trouble. He asks them a question to bring them to faith in himself. But uh, he's always brilliant, if that's the right word. And he's, he's, as it were, preaching all the time, spontaneously. He's he's not uh, preparing all those things. He has thought about them. He He knows the whole counsel of God from his Father. He's given what to say. He's in the Holy Spirit. And most of his preaching has got that kind of spontaneous uh, note to it. And then there are his interviews, times when he sees people, which actually, I think if you study them, they're like sermons to one person. When he's with Nicodemus, it's not much different from when he's preaching to a thousand people. It's, It's the same kind of style. He's, as it were, preaching to one. It doesn't matter whether he's got something to say to one person or a thousand people. It's still the same message and his style is still the same. He doesn't change styles according to where he is. Someone comes to ask him a question. The Samaritan woman, the rich young ruler, Nicodemus, he, again, he's got a word for them and he expounds what needs to be said to those people. This amazing ministry of the word of God. And the, the preparation, I believe, is in the background. It's not that he's sort of stud- in his study in the morning preparing to say something on, on a Sunday morning or to find some rich young ruler somewhere. He, that preparation is in the background. He's all the time, as it were, meditating day and night. He obviously knows his Bible inside out and back to front. And Satan comes and he says, it is written. And he's got a verse, he, exactly, exactly the right verse. Don't say, well, you know, I think there's a verse in Deuteronomy somewhere. Just, just give me a few moments while I look it up. No, no, no. He's not sort of looking for a scripture and trying to find the answer. He knows immediately by heart. He, he's not got any text, any Bible in his hands or any manuscript in his hands. He knows the Word of God. He's already done the work. The great Charles Spurgeon said to preachers, "He who would prepare little must prepare much. He who would prepare little." must prepare much. What he meant by that is, if you want to be able to say something with no preparation, in the background must be a lot of preparation. He who would prepare little must prepare much, is the way Charles Spurgeon put it. I'm always interested at when and how preachers 
prepare their sermons. And with every preacher, I like to know when he does his preparation. I can tell you when, when Spurgeon did his preparation for his Sunday morning sermon, he would, he would start working on it in the week somewhere. For his Sunday evening sermon, he would think about it on Sunday afternoon. For his Thursday exposition, he would prepare it in the horse and carriage while riding to church. By the time he got there, he would have something to say. And I can tell you the same thing was true of Lloyd-Jones and these, these great men. Very often, they scarcely do any preparation at all. You ask me, how much time do I take to prepare my sermons? Well, sometimes someone will come to me after a meeting and they say, how long did you take to prepare that sermon? And I normally avoid answering them. But uh, if I answer them, which I don't often do, but if I answer them, I normally say something like this. I say, well, there's two answers to that question, and they're both true. One answer is, it took me about 60 seconds a few moments ago sitting down on that chair. The other answer is, it's taken me 40 years. And both answers are true. He who would prepare little must prepare much. And, and so both of those answers are true answers. Yeah, a preacher, in a sense, I don't think a preacher should prepare sermons. You don't prepare sermons. You prepare to know. You prepare to know God's mind and God's word. You wanting to know the, the will and the teaching of God, and you know it. And uh, if you have any sense when you do that kind of preparation, you'll put your, your, what you're learning in points. Point one, point two, point three, you put your notes in points. And then when one day you suddenly need to, to preach something within seconds, that sermon's already been prepared. It was prepared ten years ago, maybe. And you know where you are. And uh, in revival, you should be able to... Uh, to preach almost with no notice. I, I could give you many examples of that. I was in India once. I arrived on a, on a Monday evening, I think it was, and on Tuesday there was an earthquake. It kills 28,000 people in Mumbai, in India. And I was there scheduled to, uh, to preach. What would you do if you arrive on a Monday and on Tuesday there's an earthquake? You say, now I came here to talk about the real Jesus and uh, turn to Mark chapter 8. I mean, is that what you would do? I mean, they're not going to be listening. People whose family have been killed sort of a few hundred miles away where the epicenter is, they're not going to be listening to you anyway. The 28,000 people have just been killed. They're not going to be listening to you at all. Unless you preach on earthquakes. And then they are going to be listening to you. In that particular year, many years ago in India, Every sermon I preached was on earthquakes. There would be earthquakes in diverse places. The Philippian jailer got saved in an earthquake. There was an earthquake when Jesus was risen from the dead. I preached on every earthquake passage I knew. And for about the next seven or eight years, I never went back to India without somebody came to me and said, I got saved during the earthquake. You see, you must be ready for anything. I was preaching once at a conference in South Africa, on the south coast of South Africa, and it was a conference about prayer. And uh, we had various sessions, and in the morning we, we took a, a break, and uh, had about half an hour break for coffee. And a lady in the conference went off and, and uh, went back to her room and had a, had a bath, not, not a shower, but, a, but a, a sitting in the bath kind of bath. But she was an epileptic. And while she was in the bath, she had an epileptic fit, and she slipped under the water and she drowned and died in the middle of the conference, in a 20 minute break, half an hour break, 20 minute break. She died. And so when we all came back, one of our number had died a few, a few minutes before. Big conference, a lot of people there. We, we, we couldn't really sort of cancel the conference. 
and yet everybody is suffering from shock because a, a woman has died. What do you do in that situation? Do you, do you say, well, you know, we're talking about prayer, just forget that for the moment, let's just come and talk about prayer again. It was a conference about prayer. Now I scrapped everything that we were doing and I said, uh, I want, uh, let's, let's, let's turn together to John, John's Gospel. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And for an hour I preached on, I am, the, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I tell you, they were listening, they were listening. If you are able to do that, you have golden opportunities. People were sitting on the edge of their seat, every word they want to know because of something that's just happened. A man shouts out, bid my brother divide my inheritance. And, and they're all watching to see what Jesus, Jesus is going to do now. And he answers them, tells them the parable is rich fool. You can be sure they were listening because of, of what's happening. So Jesus, as a preacher, is worth, uh, is worth studying. Well, uh, I say those things very hurriedly. And then there are the miracles of Jesus, and that's what I want us to think about in these last moments. Jesus was an amazing man of miracles, and I don't know whether you are aware, whether you've noticed how, how amazing and how pervasive were these miracles of Jesus. He, he was amazing in the sheer quantity of miracles that he did. I think we often don't notice it. There's only about 30 miracles that are actually recorded in the Gospels that are actually described, and some of them come in, in two or three times in the different Gospels. But the actual number of events being described is about 30. And uh, we can get the impression that Jesus occasionally did miracles, about 30 of them. But that would be a misunderstanding. There are many, many statements in the Gospels as, as to how many, many miracles Jesus did. Jesus could banish, could banish disease from a town. We read in, uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, that he heals Simon's mother-in-law from a fever. And the whole, at 6 o'clock, it's a Sabbath, so people can't move until the sun goes down, and when the sun goes down, the Sabbath is over. And so they can't, they can't uh, come to the house where he is. But when the sun goes down and the Sabbath is finished, the whole town turns up at the door. They've all heard, it's got, it's got, the news has gone around everywhere as to what Jesus has just done. And the whole town, as it were, turns up at the door. Everybody who is sick, everybody who's got a disease, they all come having heard what Jesus does. And the Bible says, he healed them all. He banishes sickness from a town. Now, do you ever know anybody who's ever done that? The entire village has not got any more sick people. He's killed the whole lot. Or think of how it's described once in, in Mark chapter 15, just after the feeding of the 5,000, I think it is. And we read in Mark chapter 15 of the way in which uh, Jesus heals them there. He's just been... Uh, working a miracle, but uh, we read that he goes up on a mountain and great crowds came to him. Mark, Matthew chapter 15, verse 30. Great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame and the blind and the crippled, the mute and many others. And they put, him at, they put them all at Jesus' feet and he healed them. The, the, the crowds and crowds of people bringing deaf and dumb and blind and lame, all every sick person they know, they bring them all to Jesus and he heals them all. I mean, these amazing uh, miracles that Jesus had, the sheer quantity of them, we, we tend not to notice because we 
We, uh, we notice the miracle stories, but I think we need to notice these general statements as to how Jesus healed them all. And they glorified. They saw the crowd wondered. They saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. It's amazing, these amazing miracles that Jesus did all the time, all day and every day. He was just healing people and exorcising demons and raising the dead. The actual stories are quite few, but um, there are these hints that he was doing it all the time in these general statements. There are 16 miracle, actual descriptions of miracle of healing miracles in the Gospels. There are seven occasions where he rescues people and delivers them from various kinds of demonic possession and oppression. There are nine nature miracles, and we ought to notice those. When people get interested in miracles, it's normally healings that they're interested in. But Jesus didn't only do healings. He could control the weather. He could control the sea. He could feed 5,000 people. He could get a coin. When you he, when he need to pay his taxes, he could get a coin in a fish's mouth. That would uh, save us quite a few problems. He could, he, could, he could get money from a fish. He could do negative miracles. He could t- curse a fig tree, and tomorrow morning it's, it's withered and, and it's died as, as a tree. He could, water, he could walk upon the water. He could turn water into wine. They're not only healing miracles, they are nature miracles. He could feed 5,000 people, or 5,000 families. It actually, the text actually says 5,000 men. They're not counting the women and children. 5,000 families are there. Maybe 15,000 people. Do it again, 4,000 people. But the question I want us to ask now then is what do we do with this? I have been suggesting that we have to live on Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the one on whom we fix our eye. We run the race with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Out of his fullness we receive one grace, replacing the law. As you received Christ, says Colossians, you rece- once you received him, now you've received him, as you received him, so live in him. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, as you have come to fullness of life in him. The, the secret of the entire Christian life is to be living on Jesus, to be living, eating him, drinking, drinking his blood, says the Bible, eating his body. He's the, he's the bread coming down from heaven to feed us and give us strength. We live on him. That's the teaching that uh, is back behind all that I'm saying. The reason why we, we meditate day and night upon the person of Jesus is because he's the one we're living on. We live in him. Be strong in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Put on the whole armour of God. Be strong in the, in the Lord and in the power of his might. We live on Jesus. Put on the whole armour of God. But before you put on the whole armour of God, be in him, getting strength from him. That's the teaching. So the great question is then, every aspect of Jesus, we live upon it. We live upon his goodness, his character. We live upon his face. He, he has perfect faith. We live on his face. Our faith is very weak. His face is perfect. Our little faith is faith in his big face. That's the thing. I live by the faith, or the faithfulness, translated either way. I live by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me, says the Apostle Paul. But my question tonight is, how, how then do we, do we live upon these miracles? And I think it's important that we think about this. So, let me ask you a question. When you are reading your Bible, and you come across a miracle story, maybe you're reading your daily devotions, or you're following Scripture Union, or you've got some kind of a Bible reading scheme, and you read miracle stories, what do you do with this? 
How do you apply the miracle stories of Jesus to your own life? How do you live on Jesus in this particular connection of the miracle stories of Jesus? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Let's uh, think about them together. One possibility, and I think many people would go this way, is to say, well, you know, this, is, this, is, this is what we find about Jesus. He's a healer. And so if he healed them, he can heal me. And uh, if Jesus uh, healed the paralytic, well, he can heal me. If Jesus can, can heal the sick, he can heal me when I'm sick. If I'm lame, I should be able to walk. And if I'm blind, I should be able to see. And if I'm deaf, I should be able to hear because Jesus is a miracle-working God. So I'm expecting him to do that for me. And uh, there are many people who take it that way. And I have a lot of sympathy with that. But um, I would like to say, and I'm beginning a bit negatively, I'll get a bit more positive in a moment, but uh, I would like to say that it's, it's not as easy as that. For a start, does it ever work? Do you know anybody ever, anywhere, that really takes this seriously where it totally and completely works? And uh, over the years, there have been many people who've almost uh, turned the church into a kind of Actually, I put it, I was about to say, into a heeding cult. That's sort of strong language, but uh, who talks as though the main aspect of the church is to be, is to be a, a heeding ministry as well as a preaching ministry. Jesus, Jesus healed and he preached. So, so surely we should heal and we should preach. It, uh, it sounds very convincing and people can, can um, make a strong case for things like that. Except that when you study it, it, it doesn't really work, does it? And... Um, People have their favourite verses. But no, nobody really does completely do what Jesus does. Like there really is, isn't anybody anywhere, really, who does do what Jesus does, is there? You do not know anybody, I don't think, please come and give me his name and address if you do, you don't really know anybody who banishes sickness from a town. You don't know anybody who could stop a funeral as the, as the hearse is going by. You stop the car, you open the coffin, you raise the dead and you carry on. That's Jesus did that as the widow of Nain's going by. Jesus feels a bit sorry for this lady. He stops the, he stops the funeral, he raises the, 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 the widow's son, gives, gives, her back to, to, gives him back to her mum and carries on. I sometimes say in Nairobi, you want to prove you've got power? Well, next time you see a funeral, just stop it and, and open the coffin and raise the dead and carry on. Come back to Christ and tell us what you did. I haven't had any volunteers yet. I do not not that uh, we don't believe in not that we do not believe in healing in Crisco. I can tell you we are an extremist healing ministry in Crisco. Everybody in Crisco believes in healing. We've seen resurrections from the dead. We've seen healings. And I, I know at least one Crisco pastor who did try that. He got on all the buses of Nairobi, camped around on the buses and Matatus, African African taxis, and said to people, "Don't take your when when your relative dies, don't take them to the mortuary. Bring them to me. Bring them to us. We we, we are raising from the dead." Well, I admire his boldness, but uh, he never ever did raise anybody from the dead, I'm sorry to say. And these, this sort of emphasis on healing, it, come, it comes and it goes. And over the history of the church, you, you can see every now and again there's a kind of emphasis on healing. And then it doesn't seem to work, and it doesn't work out quite as well as, as people hope it will. And so it kind of fades. It fades because it doesn't work too well. And then after about 20 years, people forget and it comes back again. 
And we've seen it ourselves in the last uh, generation. In the 19th century, there was A.B. Simpson who started the, uh, can I remember the name of it, the Christian Missionary Alliance in America, which is a, an American denomination. It had healing and it's uh, as one of its great uh, ministries. We've had people like uh, Oral Roberts and, and the Smith Wigglesworth and these great uh, healing ministries. A generation ago, John Wimber gave great teaching about uh, healing and so on. At the moment, Bill Johnson in America, every now and then these things come and go. They go because after a while they don't work. They come and people forget that they didn't work. They come back again after about 20 years. So there are certain problems in this, and I want to uh, deal with it negatively. I'll come to some positive things in a moment. But uh, let me begin by giving you some cautions. What, what are the miracles all about? Well, first of all, they, they are disproofs of deism. They, they prove that deism is wrong. Do you know what I mean by deism? Deism is the kind of uh, view of life that says, well, there may, be, there may be a God up there somewhere, but he doesn't interfere with us. Nature just sort of goes on independently of God, and so you don't really expect miracles. This world is like a kind of machine, and uh, it just sort of ticks over, and God's not really involved in it. And so miracles don't really happen because because it would be breaking the laws of nature. And um, that's deism. That there is maybe there's a God somewhere, but he doesn't, as it were, interfere. And so and so miracles don't take place. And uh, if there ever were miracles, well, they were. They were contraventions of, law, of natural law, and Jesus maybe did it a few thousand years ago, but he doesn't do it today, and, uh, and we, God is a bit more distant and interfering with the course of nature. That's deism. Well, every time you have a miracle story, you have a disproof of deism. And every time you experience a miracle, deism is being disproved. Every time you pray and somebody is healed, or there is a resurrection, or something dramatic does happen, you have a kind of dis- disproof that God's distant and far away. No, God is intimately and personally involved, second by second. Natural law is his law. The way in which nature works is the way in which he is upholding nature. He's not, some, he's not outside of nature, he's in nature. He's in the midst of it. He's, he's not a, a kind of gap there where God just uh, slots in the gap. The whole whole of existence is full of God. In him we live and move and have our being and natural law is his law. It's the regularity of what he is doing in ruling our world. He's not a distant God, he's involved. In any second he can, he can I don't know whether the word interfere is right, he can, he can do something unusual. There can be a wonder, there can be a marvel, there can be something which you were not expecting. And every time you read a story of this nature or you have an experience in, in modern life, you, you have a kind of proof that God is involved in our world. So every miracle story is a kind of disproof of deism, it's dis, is a disproof of a kind of distant God who's not involved in our lives. We, we surely begin there. And Jesus proves that. He goes around everywhere, just healing, raising the dead. And when John the Baptist says, well, are you the one who's to come? He says, you, you go back and tell John the dead, the dead are raised and the blind are seeing and the lame is walking and, and, and the poor have good news to them. That's, that's a, a proof of the gospel as well. It's the only message which really fits the poor. Go and tell John about the miracles. He'll, he'll surely know that I am who I said I was. So the miracles are disproofs of deism, and they are proof that God is intimately involved in our world. But I want to try to persuade you not to go over the top in this subject. Don't, don't act as though there's some kind of a absolute guarantee that, that healings will take place. Don't tell people to claim miracles. 
Don't, tell, don't encourage people to demand miracles. When somebody in the church has cancer, don't go around saying, well, the Lord's going to heal him. The Lord may heal him, our God is able, but don't make it a definite uh, prediction and promise, because if it doesn't happen, you're going to be in bad trouble. Your whole church is going to be in trouble if you make some promise and it doesn't work out. And it may not be any sign of unbelief that it does not work out. Remember that Jesus has perfect faith and you don't have perfect faith. Jesus had the Spirit without measure, says John chapter 3. He had, there's no limit to, to his faith. There's no limit to, to the power of the Spirit with on him, that's upon him. He has the Spirit without measure, says John chapter 3. We have a measure of faith according to the measure, according to the measure of our faith is the way in which we work. We have a measure of faith. We don't have perfect faith. Jesus did. He could do anything. And he, he didn't need anybody else to have faith. When, when the widow of Nain lost her son and the son was there and he's raised from the dead, who was having faith? Not the woman, she wasn't expecting anything. Not, not the disciples, they weren't expecting anything. The dead man wasn't having faith. Who was having faith? Only Jesus. Jesus is having faith. He says, no, I'm going to heal her. It's his faith, nobody else's faith. And... Uh, he has this perfect faith. He can do anything. He can curse a fig tree. And uh, people come back the next day and say, well, Lord, you know you cursed a fig tree and the fruit is with us. He doesn't say, yeah, that's because I'm God. He says, yes, and if you had faith, you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it would happen. He does not attribute the miracle to his deity. He attributes the miracle to his faith. He has perfect faith. He can do anything of this nature because he knows the will of God. He knows what he can do, and there's no limit to his faith. And he can do anything in that, in that sense. When the devil came to him and said, and said well, to turn these stones into bread, he could have done it. There's no point of, of Jesus being tempted to turn stones into bread if he couldn't have done it. it. The whole forcefulness of the temptation comes because he could have done it. He has perfect faith. The fact that Jesus has perfect faith does not mean that we can totally be like Jesus. You, you may find this teaching, well, we do, we do Jesus' work. What Jesus does, we do well, there's a difference. Jesus has perfect faith. You don't have perfect faith. You cannot switch on a miracle. You can't claim a miracle. You can't guarantee a miracle. I know there are certain verses. I'll come back to them in a moment. But uh, Jesus has perfect faith. You don't. Though even Jesus didn't always heal everybody. There's a kind of sovereignty in Jesus' healings. When he goes to the pool of Siloam in John chapter 5, there's all these, there's all these sick people all laying by the pool. He heals one of them. I often think to myself, what, what, what would I have felt like if I'd been one of the other ones? Imagine you've been lying by a pool for ten years and Jesus comes along and heals one, but not you. Well, that happened in John chapter 5. He heals one person. He doesn't always uh, heal every single person there. On that occasion, he heals one. So Jesus has perfect faith. And then remember that the Bible says there's such a thing as gifts of faith. A person has a gift of faith. And you must think through the implications of that. If a person has a gift of faith, it means that he has something that others do not have. A gift is something which you have, which the generality of people do not have. And you need to bring this into, into, into a play with regard to healing. You see, here's, here's the kind of thing that happens. You get a person who obviously does have a gift of faith. It's perfectly obvious that people like Smith, Wigglesworth and a few others, they, they clearly have gifts that most of us do not have. And there's no sort of denying the kind of things that they did. And Oral Roberts and these people, they, they clearly had a, amazing gifts. And what tends to happen is, is 
that they tend to persuade us that we should be doing what they're doing. But remember that when a person is gifted, that it doesn't feel like a gift to him. If, if you have a gift, it doesn't feel like a gift for, to you. It's a gift to everybody else, because we can all say that you can do the thing, and none, none of us, the rest of us can't do it, but you seem to be able to do it. You have some gift. It doesn't feel like a gift for you. For you, it's not a gift, it's normality. And I sort of think I have a tiny gift at preaching. I can never understand why you can't all preach. I mean, it's so simple. We stand up and just talk, and God, God uses you. That's the end of the matter. Why can't you all preach? Anybody who has a gift thinks that, that anybody else can do the same thing, but it's not true. I used, I used to, in Rugal Baptist Church, I, there was a, a lady there who was um, the, Sunday school, the, the leader of the Sunday school. And she was a brilliant Sunday school teacher. She was also the head of a, a national Sunday school teaching organization throughout the whole country, SASRA, the Sunday School Association of South Africa. And uh, she was an ex- exceedingly gifted lady. But she had one problem. That if you didn't become a Sunday school teacher, she wasn't sure you were even saved. I mean, everybody had to be a Sunday school teacher. And if you didn't, if you weren't willing, she, she was out. You know, you, you, how can you not love children? These poor children, they go to hell. If you don't preach to them, and she really attacks you if you didn't become a Sunday school teacher. She thought the whole church ought to be Sunday school teachers. Well, I can sort of understand that. That was her gift to her. She, she could see some child in, in sort of need, and she would be so sort of uh, concerned for that child. But she thought everybody ought to be like that. And uh, this is a problem with healing. So when you find somebody who's got a great uh, gift of healing, you will find that they will say to you, there's no reason why you shouldn't. Try, and face, do this. And they're sort of pressing their gift upon you. But you don't have their gift. I think the great example of this, a man who I admire very much, he's one of my heroes, one of the men I uh, admire immensely is George Muller, the great uh, man who lived by faith and ran orphanages in Bristol. And you know the, some of the amazing stories of, of, Mu, of Muller and his faith. And you know the famous, perhaps, the famous story of when he totally ran out of money. And there were two or three hundred children there in the orphanage in Bristol. They're still there. You can still go and see them today. And uh, but one morning, they had totally run out of money, totally run out of food, and the, and the cupboards that kept the food were empty. And there were two hundred children there at sort of eight o'clock in the morning, ready to have breakfast. There was absolutely nothing that he had in the in the orphanage. And you know what Muller did? He said grace. Lord, we thank you for this food. He began to say grace over the food. And as he, uh, there was no food there, but as he was saying grace, there came a knock on the door, of the front door of the orphanage, and two people were out there. And he went to the door, and the first person to, 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 to speak to him at the door said, Oh, Mr. Mr. Muller, really, the Lord's really told me I really must give you this cash. And he had a big financial gift and a lot of money to give, give to George Muller. And he said, I really felt, felt the Lord saying, I must come and give you this now. And I've come here, 8 o'clock in the morning, whenever, and here's the money that the Lord's told me to give to you. The other person was an itinerant van, drawn, drawn by a horse, I guess, going around distributing food and selling food to the various houses. The money and the food arrived at the door as he was saying grace. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I could live that way. <laughs> I don't think if, I, if my wife had no money and we had no food in the pantry, I don't think I'd be saying grace for the food in breakfast. But uh, George Muller could do that. He could do it. He, he, he could do it with no problem whatsoever. He just says grace. And as he's saying grace, the food, the food and the money arrive at the door at the same time. On one occasion, he was about to sail the Atlantic. He was preaching in America. He used to sail the Atlantic in, in a big uh, 19th century steamboat. And uh, there was fog over the port. I suppose it was Plymouth or Portsmouth or somewhere. And there was thick fog uh, uh, that stopped, was stopping the boat from sailing. 
And uh, so Moolah was going to be late for his appointment because the ship was being delayed by several days. And uh, he just was not going to get to his preaching engagements. So he went to the captain and he said to the captain, well, you know, don't you believe the Lord could, uh, could just drive this fog away and we could sail immediately? Don't you think we could pray about it? And the captain said, yeah, all right. And so Moolah prayed that the fog would go away. And he opened his eyes and he looked at the captain and he said to the captain, you don't believe that the Lord can do this. I believe he already has. And they walked to the window and the fog had gone. <laughs> now, that, that was typical of Moolah. But, and he was a great man of prayer, and the only one he can teach you about prayer and faith is, is Muller. But I've got one criticism of him. I've got one little uh, query about him. He used to talk as though everybody could do this. He, he would say, you must pray the prayer of faith. He would say, pray with faith. And he would, as it were, rebuke people if they couldn't pray the way he prayed, and sort of teach them that they should, they should do what he's doing. Now, that's a mistake, because in his case, it's a gift. Most of us, including me, and maybe including you, most of us could not live this way, but he could. And the same is true of certain miracles. The fact that, some, that somebody's got a gift of miracles does not mean that, that he can impose his gift upon you. And you may not be able to do, to do that. And you must not universalize a gift, any gift, whether it's faith or miracles or preaching or anything. You must not act as though the whole people of God have got to have the gift that you've got. It is true that you're a kind of example to them and they can learn a few things from you because of your gift. But you can't impose your gift upon others. And this is very important in connection with healing. The fact that you can find an Aura Roberts or a Smith Wigglesworth does not mean that you can be a Smith Wigglesworth. Maybe you can be, and you can pray. The Bible tells us earnestly desire the best gift. You can seek a gift, and maybe you can learn from somebody, and maybe a gift can grow in you that you didn't have before. I have no problems with that. But you can't just automatically do everything that a gifted man could do. And the fact that you can find some, some hero of the faith that can just switch on miracles does not mean that you can do it. And if you try to do to exercise a gift that you've not got, you will be in trouble. And the worst thing that ever happen, it happens a lot in, in this kind of circle, is that um, you go to somebody, especially when someone's dying, and, and you say to the sick person, now if you had faith, you, you, this cancer would go. It's a terrible thing to do. Here's a guy who's sick already, and you're, you're putting this burden upon him of healing himself by prayer. In Nairobi, I tell you, I train people. When someone says that to you, you reply to them, I'm sick, you have faith for me. Why, why should it always be the sick person that we are demanding to have faith? Why, why can't it be the praying person? If you come to me and say, if you have faith, you can be healed, I'll say, well, you have faith. You're, you're the one that's talking about it. So you, have the, you pray for me and I'll, believe, I'll trust in your faith. Don't always, why, why put the burden upon the sick person? We're always doing that. It's, it's unkind, it's cruel. And it leads to great tragedies. I, I could tell you stories of great tragedies. And don't sort of teach that there's a kind of absolute promise of healing. Again, I could tell you many, many stories. There was a certain apostle in, he called himself an apostle in Uganda, who had a certain influence over the border into Busia, over the border into Kenya. And he had a very strong doctrine of, um, of being able to claim healing. Healing in the atonement was his favorite uh, phrase. And he, he persuaded a lot of my own people or churches that I have a certain uh, influence in. He persuaded many of them of this teaching and um, caused great problems. And one particular leader there he taught this teaching and he was in bad trouble. One day he got sick himself and he got tuberculosis and it was quite serious. And he did not want to go to any hospital and... Uh, and uh, 
get any kind of help. He was claiming healing. And I knew this man quite well, and I knew exactly what he would do. And uh, eventually he got so sick that people persuaded him to go into hospital, and he, and he did. He went into the sea hospital. But I knew him quite well, and I knew exactly what he would do. I knew that the very second any antibiotic began to have any kind of effect on him, he would declare that he was healed and he would walk out. I knew he would do that. I travelled 300 miles from Nairobi to Busia to go and see him in hospital. And I said, I pleaded with him, this tuberculosis, please stay in this hospital until your course is finished. Don't, don't you walk out when you begin to get a bit better. And I promised him, we will cover all medical bills. I'll fundraise among the churches for you. Every single medical bill of yours will be paid for, if only you will stay here. And he said, yeah, okay. But he didn't keep his promise. Two days later, the antibiotic began to work a bit. He began to recover. When he, re- when he began to recover, he said, oh, I'm healed. And he went off and he left the hospital, went on some evangelistic campaign in Uganda, in Uganda. But he died. And the money that we collected went to his widow. He could not keep his own teaching. And that happened a lot with all of the people he had an influence over. It had, it had, it had an influence everywhere. I knew of one pastor who lost all of his, all of his children. Because each time, well, in West Kenya, there's a lot of sickness down by the Lake Victoria. It's a very unhealthy place. And um, he lost all of his children. Each time one of his children got sick, he, he wouldn't do anything. He would claim healing. And each one of them died. And finally, his wife died. He got married again. And, and sickness is bad in Western Kenya. His second wife died. He lost two families. <laughs> he's, he's still alive. He's getting on in years these days. But uh, each time people got, you get sick a lot in West Kenya. And he goes to West Kenya, they get Lake, Lake Victoria, they always come back sick. Uh, apart from me, I never come back sick. But, uh, but uh, it's a very unhealthy place. And he's just got married for the third time. And I'm just praying that he's learned his lesson, otherwise he'll lose his third wife as well. Always trying to, as it were, claim healing. You may say, what about these sort of verses? This, people often like this phrase, that there's healing in the atonement. It comes from Matthew chapter 8, where it says that Jesus healed somebody because he bore our sicknesses. He, he, Matthew eight seventeen. And people will say, well, there's healing in the atonement. I answer... There is everything in the atonement. There's the resurrection body in the atonement. There's the new heavens and the new earth in the atonement. Every single blessing that God is ever going to give you, he will give you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, Jesus, sent his son to die for the reconciliation of all things. The entire renovation of the universe was all bought by the blood of Christ. But the fact that the entire blessings of, of reconciliation, the reconciliation of all things, Colossians 1.20, the fact that everything has been bought by the blood of Christ does not mean that you can switch it on right now. You can't, it is true, all of your healing has been bought for, but that does not mean you can switch it on. The new heavens has been bought for you. It doesn't mean you can, you can create the new world now. Your resurrection body has been bought for. It does not mean you can switch it on right now at this second. And that every healing has been paid for by the blood of Christ. That's where its strengths come from. But it does not mean that therefore you can claim it and switch it on now. Everything has been bought by the blood of Christ. And all that that verse means, Isaiah 53, Matthew 8, 17, all that that verse means is that when any blessing comes to you, it comes to you by virtue of the blood of Christ. It does not mean you can switch it on, and you can't. Don't, don't misuse the verse that way. 
Oh, so I'm being negative there. So what do you do when someone's sick? When you are sick or someone's sick, well, you look first to God. Don't, don't look to the doctor first. Look to God first. You look first to God. Remember the guy in the Old Testament where it says he, he trusted the physicians and he didn't trust God. You know, you know that uh, king in the Old Testament. You don't trust the doctors but not trust God. You trust God and God might use some doctor somewhere. You begin with God and you look for God to give you to get glory, to get honour. Even if you die, you want him to get glory and honour by, by what's happening to you. You don't claim sickness. You turn to the Lord, you ask for any kind of blessing. Your attitude is to be like the men who were threatened with the fiery furnace. Remember Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, where Daniel says, Our God is able, when Nebuchadnezzar is threatening them with being thrown into the fiery furnace, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, this God of ours whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. They uh, they know that God can do it, and they are optimistic that God will do it. Our God is able, and our God will do it. They, They know he's able to do it, and they're confident that God will do it. But then do you notice the next phrase? The next phrase was, but even if he doesn't, be it known to you that we will not bow down to your gods. Now, do you see the three points? Number one, our God is able. Number two, we're quite optimistic that he'll do it. Number three, it may be that he won't. But even if he doesn't, it's all right. We will not compromise or fail to trust him. We're not going to bow down to your gods. Three things. Our God is able to do it. He might do it, and we're sort of hoping that he will, but he might not. There's a sovereignty there. He could, he could let us just die for him in the fiery furnace. Our God is able, but if he doesn't, well, it's all right. We're still not going to bow down to you. Three things. Our God is able to do it. He, he might do it, and we're trusting him to do it, but he might not. There's a sovereignty there. There's a sovereignty of God. And the missing note in all healing movements at the moment is the sovereignty of God. You cannot switch on a healing. And no matter how great your man is, John Wimber, Bill Johnson, anybody, no matter how great he is, he cannot switch on a healing. And 100% healings do not take place. And there are failures and there are disappointments. And you can go all the way to New York or Anaheim or somewhere, and you can, as it were, dry, dry and try and get them and bring it back and try to perpetuate the, me- the, the, the same message here. You'll find you can't do it. You cannot transfer a ministry. What might happen in Anaheim, you can't transfer it somewhere else. As surely we have learned a thousand times over. Every time there's a revival, we all hop on a plane to America to go and try and import it. Mind you, you have to be rich to do it. We poor Kenyans, we're just uh, still praying for the, for the airfares to come. <laughs> uh, only the rich can do it. I mean, there's something suspicious about a style of ministry that only the rich can afford and, and that the poor can't possibly do. That ought to raise a few questions in itself. No, no, you can't just import something from Anaheim or... or Pensacola or wherever, you can't do that. And churches all over Europe who keep on flying to America to import this and this and this and this. They never do import it, do you? You can go to the various churches that are trying to do it and they have not imported it. No, the missing note is the sovereignty of God. Well, I said I'd be positive. Let me try and be positive. What are the miracles are about? They are signs of Jesus' messiahship. They are proof that Jesus has perfect faith. They are signs... They are foretastes of final glory. Every time there's a miracle, it is a flash of final glory. It is a flash of the final raised, resurrected glory that's going to come that you're getting now. You remember how Jesus put this in the case of Lazarus. Mary and Martha say to Jesus, well, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And they say to him, 
and they, Jesus, say, well, Jesus said, well, he'll be raised from the dead. And they said, yeah, yeah, we, we know he'll be raised at the last day. Jesus says, you know, I am the last day. That, that last day when there's a resurrection, that's me. I am the resurrection and the life. I can do it now. I'm here. You have to wait till the last day. I'm here now. I can do it. Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. He is the resurrection of the life and he is there. He can do it straight away. And so where Jesus is deciding to do it, a flash of final glory comes, comes now because Jesus is here now. Every miracle is a flash of final glory. Every time there's a healing is, is what we're all going to have in the last day. Every time there's a resurrection, one day Jesus will banish death altogether and we get a little taste of Jesus banishing death even now. Every miracle is a flash of glory from the last day. Every miracle is an acted parable. When, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he heals a blind man. When Jesus says, I can give you life, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Every, every miracle is a kind of illustration. That's why in John's Gospel they are called signs. They signify something spiritual about Jesus. Every miracle is a kind of parable. That's why you can, you can spiritualize the parables. That's why you can take them spiritually. The reason why you can say, well, if he can heal the deaf, he can, make me, he can give me to hear his word. If he can open the eyes of the blind, I can see things spiritually. He can open my eyes. You can spiritualize it. You, the reason why you can do that is because Jesus himself is doing that. He's, he's saying, well, 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 I'm the light of the world, so I'm going to heal this blind man. He's the light of the world spiritually, but, but the physical thing illustrates the spiritual. Every miracle is a kind of parable, and, and, and we find this here. If I've got time to do it, I'll show you. Every miracle is a kind of parable. Every miracle is a flash of glory. And every miracle, and here's the thing that I'm, really is my main point. I'm taking a long time to get there. But here's my, here's my main point. Every miracle is a little sign to you as to what the Lord could do. The power is there whether he does the miracle or not. And that's the whole point of the story I read to you. Here is Jesus. He's just fed 5,000 people. And they are in the boat, and they've got a loaf of bread, only one loaf of bread, and they are worried. I mean, just imagine that five minutes ago, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and you were worrying about having only one loaf of bread. And Jesus says to them, you know, are you blind? Have you not been watching what I've just been doing? You know, I've just read 5,000 people, and you were worrying about only having one loaf. Are you blind? Are you so hard of heart? In other words, what Jesus is surely saying to them is, if I have just fed 5,000 people, and, and, then, and then after that there was 4,000 people, it wasn't people, it was families, 5,000 families and 4,000 families, why are you worrying about only having one loaf of bread? If I've just fed 5,000, surely you ought not to be worrying that here we are crossing the sea and you've only got one loaf. Mind you, Jesus does not do a miracle with that one loaf. He doesn't say, well, I've just fed 5,000, so now I'm going to feed you. Just watch, and, and, and he hands out bread to the disciples and he does the same miracle again. No, no, it's not what he does do, it's what he could do. He's just said to them, well, I've just fed 5,000 people. So you ought never to be fearing hunger in your life. You've just watched me feeding thousands of people. Why can you possibly be worried about only having one loaf of bread? Not that Jesus does another miracle. It's not that Jesus says, well, 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 now, now I'll do what I did for the 5,000, I'll do for you. Let's have another miracle. He doesn't do that. He, in fact, he does not work a miracle on that occasion. 
But, but it's what he's just done, and so he still could do it. You see, the miracles ought to tell you of what the Lord could do. That power is there. He could do something immediately at any point. And the miracles ought to make you know that you ought never to fear the slightest situation that you are ever in. You have a miracle-working God. That does not believe he'll actually do the miracle. It's in his sovereign will. But he does do it, and he has done it, and in this particular case, he's just done it. So, so why are they in any way whatsoever afraid? They ought to have no fears at all, because they know that power is within him. He has perfect faith. He can create food from nowhere right there in the boat. It doesn't mean that he will, but it means that he could. And he's just shown that he could, so they ought not to be having the slightest fear. And that's, that's the way we should use the miracles. Our God can open the eyes of the blind. Our God can raise the dead. Anything that's died, God can raise it. A marriage that's died, if he can raise the dead, he can raise a marriage. A, a body that's dying, he can raise a body. Uh, some situation, you're backslidden and your old life is gone, it's dead and buried. Our God has a habit of raising things that are dead and buried. You can apply the, the principle that we have a resurrection God to, in any area whatsoever. When you're hungry, you say, well, well he, he creates loaves from nothing. Why should I bother about being hungry? If you've got no money, he, he's a God who, who can just create anything from anywhere. Surely you ought never to have the slightest fear of anything. It does not mean that God will do miracles, but it means that's the power that's in him. And you know it's there and he could do anything at any point. And if he doesn't do it, he'll do something that's equally good for you instead. And you live that way. You live that way. Anything where there's blindness, God can do, can heal it, or he can do something that's just as good. Any deafness, he can deal with it, or he can do something just as good. Any, anything that's died, he can raise anything that's died from anywhere. This is the God that we serve. So this is the way the miracles are to be used. We are to use our knowledge of what the Lord could do. But don't, let, but don't cancel out the sovereignty of God. Don't cancel out that it is God's will that's going to prevail, not yours. You cannot switch on a miracle. You've got a God who's sovereign, can do anything at any point, and you live that way. But it does not mean that you are in control. You are not in control. He is in control. And you should not be afraid of phrases like, if it be your will. Sometimes people pour scorn upon that phrase. You should not do it. We are under the will of God. Although, mind you, the prayer of faith is when you know the will of God. The prayer of faith is not a thing you can switch on. You can't switch on the prayer of faith. This is Muda's mistake. You cannot switch on a Muda-type faith. You can't do it. The prayer of faith is something which is given to you. You, you know God's will. As you're saying grace, you know that before you finish grace, there'll be food coming from somewhere. That's the prayer of faith. You, you're given that knowledge. When Peter goes up to the temple in... Acts chapter 3, and that blind man is there. He's passed that blind man every day. They're going to the temple daily, and they're, they're laying that blind man at the temple daily. He has passed that man many times before. You may say, why didn't he heal him before? But on one day, as he's going up at the temple, we read that Peter, as the man says something, Peter fixes his eye on him. He knows he's being commissioned to do something. On that day, he's not saying, if it be your will. On that day, he knows he's being called to do something. The prayer of faith is a prayer that you are given. If you can say to this mountain, be moved, well, it's going to happen. If you, if you know God's will, if you can say, you might not be able to, but if you can, you're being given something special. And you know. 
That's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the sick. If we know that he hears us, we have whatever we ask of him. When, when something is given to you and you know that, that this particular request is being given to you, ah, well, that's going to happen. You can, you, can, you can pronounce what's going to happen before it happens. And Peter, Peter's not saying, well, you know, I'm sorry about this, I'll pray for you. Lord, please bless this man, if it be your will, just help him a bit, maybe you could make him a bit better. No, no, he's not praying like that. He's saying, in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's been given a prayer. But if you're given a prayer and you have that kind of faith, it's all right, you can pray that way. But then lastly, I'm, I'm sorry to keep you, but just let me finish because this is the last session this day. But uh, that's where this miracle comes in. I said just now the miracles are, are kind of acted parables. And that is the explanation of this funny little story that, that I read to you. It, they, immediately after this incident, they bring to him a blind man. And Jesus uh, spits upon him and touches him and handles him, and he's half healed. And he says, do you see anything? And he says, yeah, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. And he prays for him again. And the second time, the man is fully and totally healed. Now, how do you use this miracle story? It is totally unusual. There's no other story like it in the Gospels. There is nowhere in the Gospels where Jesus tries to pray and it sort of half works and then he has to pray again. People sometimes use this story to keep you going when you fail to do a miracle. You fail, you pray for something and nothing happens, and, and they say, well, it happened to even Jesus, even he failed, and he carried on praying, and the second time it worked. So, 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 so try the second time. They, they use the, the miracles to, to suggest that Jesus maybe failed, but the second time it worked. So, so maybe if you fail, we'll try again, you never know what might happen the second time. I don't think that's the way it's meant to be used. No, surely this is once again a kind of acted parable. Surely Jesus is referring to what's just been taking place with these disciples. They have seen the feeding of the 5,000, and yet they don't seem to be able to see that this is the kind of God they live upon. So Jesus says to them, you're only half seeing. You've just seen me feed 5,000, but don't you perceive? Don't you hear? Are your hearts hardened? Can you not see what I've just been doing? They are only half seeing. And so immediately he heals somebody and deliberately, knowing exactly what he's doing, he only half heals him. The man only half gets the miracle until he gets a second touch from the Lord. It is Jesus' way of saying, if you don't see the power that's in our God, you need a kind of second touch. You need the Lord to show you something which is in Jesus that you're only half seeing. That he is the God of miracles, he's the God of wonders, he's the, he's the God who can do anything. And although, although he's sovereign and he keeps that power within his own, his own sovereignty, it's his will, you can't switch things on, you're not in control, he's in control. And how much and what happens exactly is in his hands. Yes, until you've seen this, this potential, until you've seen what this power, this power to raise the dead and solve blindness and deafness and paralysis of every kind, until you've seen this in, in the Lord, you're only half seeing. And you need to have your eyes further opened. You're, you're seeing things, but it is fuzzy. You're not seeing them properly. Until, you, until you're totally released from panic until you are totally released from anxiety, until you get to the point where you do not have the slightest bit of anxiety. I didn't say that you're not tempted by anxiety. We're all tempted by anxiety. But you can deal with the temptation. 
You are not anxious at all. You could be tempted that way, but you, you don't yield to the temptation. You know that there is not the slightest reason to be anxious about anything because our God can do anything at any point and he's in immediate contact with every circumstance you'll ever be in. And even if he doesn't do the miracle, he could do. And if he does something else instead, that's up to him. Unless you live that way, you're only half seeing. Unless you live that way, you're needing a second touch. You're needing the Lord to do something further in opening your eyes. Your heart's a little bit hardened. You you reckon you're believing in God, but you've only half seen him. Can you not see his power? Can you not see that he can raise the dead? The death is nothing to him. Can you not see he can heal the he can he can give sight to the blind if he can do all these things in a way that's a, a marvel a wonder remember these words see this is why miracles can't be switched on if miracles could be switched on you wouldn't wonder about them the very essence of a miracle is they're a bit unusual and you marvel you wonder you're amazed if if it happens every five minutes you're not amazed if if you can just switch it on it's not a wonder anymore you're not, you're not surprised because you expect it anyway no no a miracle is something unusual a miracle is where you wonder a miracle is where you marvel it's amazing to you you give glory to the God of Israel you wonder of what's happened that's that's a miracle if it's something you can switch on it's not a miracle Miracles, by definition, are unusual. Miracles are the irregularity of God's action, but it's there. But His power is there all the time. Even when He doesn't do the miracle, He could. The power is there. Even when he, even when you're crossing the boat with a loaf of bread, and He does nothing. He's just fed five thousand. Power is there, and you must know He is totally and completely in control of your life. Well, I could tell you many stories. I've deliberately not told you any miracle stories. I could. I tell you many. I remember preaching a, a message quite similar to what I preached tonight in uh, in Switzerland, and there was a little boy there who uh, was there at the meeting who had had cancer, quite serious cancer in a leg, and people had prayed the whole. Ch- it was a charismatic church, believed in healing, and they prayed for the little boy, but uh, he wasn't healed. And the cancer got worse, and, uh, and it got so serious that, that the doctors said, there's only one thing we can do, and that is to, to, uh, to, uh, to cut the leg off, to uh, remove his leg. So the little boy, when we were there, had only one leg. He'd had one, one leg removed because cancer was in the bones. People had prayed for him for years, and that, that night I was preaching on healing, and everybody there was, was remembering little Jack, the little boy who uh, had quite serious cancer, had lost a leg, had been amputated. I said to them, let's end our meeting tonight in prayer for Jack. And the, and the little meeting in uh, Basel in Switzerland, we began to pray. And that night, that boy's cancer was stopped. And from that day to this, there's never been the slightest hint of any cancer in that boy. He's still alive, doing well. We've only got one leg, but... Uh, Still alive and lively, loving God, lively spiritual boy. That night, that cancer went, and it's never returned. And um, you may say, why did God didn't God do it earlier? I've no idea. God is totally sovereign. But uh, at, at a night when we were thinking about healing, that night we prayed, and that night that boy was healed. I was starting a prayer meeting once in in Kenya, a new prayer meeting. We have big prayer meetings with a thousand people there, but uh, I was once starting a new prayer meeting, and I was at a prayer meeting in a rough, tough part of the town, pioneering in a rough, tough part of the town. And uh, that day when there was a prayer meeting, beginning about 30 people there, new prayer meeting. 
somebody came to me and said, uh, would you pray for, for healing? And uh, a friend of mine who's really sick, and I uh, brought a handkerchief, she, she said to me, I brought a handkerchief, would you pray for the handkerchief? And I'll go and lay the handkerchief upon him and he'll be healed. We're, we're a bit uh, extremist in, in Cusco, but uh, we do things like that. And I said, yeah, okay. I don't normally pray for handkerchiefs, but on that day I did. And uh, so we prayed over this handkerchief. And she said she'd go and lay it upon some, her, her friend in the hospital. So we prayed. And I forgot all about it, and uh, just, just something I do quite frequently. Not precisely that way, but in one way or another. Then about three weeks later, I was, I was back at the same prayer meeting, once again leading the prayer meeting and uh, at some lunchtime over the rough, tough part of town. And I saw this lady, and I remembered what, what had happened about three weeks later. So I said to her, oh, uh, I'm remembering we prayed for your friend. What, what, how's your friend? How's, how's he doing? What, you know, what happened as, as we prayed? She said, oh, well, she said, uh, you know, after we prayed a couple of weeks ago, we, I went back to the hospital, but when I got there, he had died. And he, he'd already died when I got to the hospital. And they were wheeling his body away to the mortuary on a trolley. And I said, oh, oh, you know, and I'm sorry about that. She said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry, it's all right. She said, it's all right. I laid the handkerchief upon him, and he sat up, and he woke up, and they had, they had to turn the trolley around and take him back to the ward. <laughs> Oh, God is able. He can do anything. You can be weeding some away to the mortuary, and one little handkerchief will raise him from the dead. Our God can do anything. But it's under the sovereignty of God's purpose. You, you can't guarantee it. You can't switch it on. Anything could happen. A boy can, can, can lose a leg, and then one day God says, well, enough is enough, and it stops. Or someone could be being wheeled away on a trolley to the mortuary. God said, no, I'm going to do something. It doesn't happen every five minutes, but it happens occasionally. You can't guarantee it or switch it on. Don't go around telling people you're going to be healed next week. Don't do that. I would say to somebody, you know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have this cancer if you had faith. No, no, you have faith. You pray for them. See what God will do for you. And let God be sovereign. But Jesus is a miracle-working God. He can heal blindness of every kind, spiritual blindness. When you've got some friend who cannot see the things of God, God can work a healing of, of, of illumination. When you've got someone who seems to, when you yourself or some friend you've got seems to be paralyzed and you can't do something, you've got a kind of spiritual paralysis. The one who can heal physical paralysis can heal spiritual paralysis. He can deal with it. He can release you and get your bones moving, get you moving in life. Our God is a miracle working God. You can spiritualize. His power is there. Our God is able. Maybe he'll do it. Maybe he won't, but it's all right. He's in his hands. Trust him. Believe him. Don't be a deist. Don't believe God's out there somewhere unrelated to you. Expect God to be the living God in your life. But don't control him. Don't dictate him. Allow him to be God. Allow him still to be in charge. Don't predict what's going to happen. Don't have a healing service. Jesus, among the list of these things that Jesus never did, is he never held a healing service. He never said, next week all come, we're going to have a miracle. It's going to be a miracle service next week. Come, bring your sick, and they're all going to be healed next, next Friday. Jesus never did that. Every miracle surprised people. Nobody ever put up an announcement, next week, come, 4th of April, 4th of April, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there'll be a miracle service. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. You cannot predict what God will do. God always surprises you. Miracles are always surprising. If they're not surprising, then not miracles. A miracle by definition is something that surprises you. Let God be God. Don't be a deist. Let God be God.